This time of year, students of all ages head back to school. That's true from pre-K to grad school and including seminarians. This past week, St. Paul School of Theology, where I taught, they went back to school, and for the first time in 30 years, I did not. <laughs> and people have asked me how that feels, and quite honestly, I'm grieving a little bit. I have no regrets, I'm thrilled to be here, but I am grieving, I miss that classroom experience. Some of you know that for 30 years, I taught preaching and worship, and I remember how when I would meet someone on a plane, for instance, and they would say, so what do you do? And I would say, well, I'm a professor at a seminary and I teach preaching and worship. They always understood the preaching part because they thought, well, yeah, of course, that's a skill you have to learn, so you teach them how to preach. They couldn't figure out was the worship part. And here's why I think they couldn't get it. They kept picturing me teaching people how to worship, to do what we're doing this morning. When in reality, these were pastors that I was teaching about the theology of worship and how to put services together and how to lead them. But that didn't occur to them. But then I thought, it's an intriguing idea, though, teaching people how to worship. How did you learn how to worship? And I'm not just talking about how do you find the passage of Scripture in the Bible or do you know the meaning of the word doxology. But... How did you learn to worship? I think for most of us, the very first lesson was from our parents when they said, shh, or handed us crayons, or put our head in their lap and said, it'll be over in a few more minutes. <laughs> that was the beginning and maybe the end of our liturgical education, but we've been going for Sunday after Sunday for a long time, but no one ever taught us about it. That's not true, by the way, here, not always. Over the last few weeks, the children were brought in here at the Sunday school hour. There was a, a little label here that said pulpit and one that said lectern and table and organ, and, and the kids got a, an education about worship. But I'm guessing for most of us, we've just been going and doing it but no one ever taught us how. So because that's probably the case, and because I'm really missing the classroom, I've enrolled all of you this morning in Worship 401, which is the class that I taught. You'll be hearing from the registrar, but you can audit, no tuition. It was called 401, not 101, because it was for upper class people, graduating seniors, in which we wrestled with the hard issues of worship. One, one of the premises was pretty simple, and I've kind of already hinted at it. People enter into things more meaningfully when they understand what's going on. Make sense? The analogy I used most often in class was opera. Even if you don't know the lyrics and don't know what's going on, if you are an opera buff, it doesn't matter because you just let the experience wash over you. Although many opera buffs have learned the language and know the plot. But for someone who doesn't, if they go in the first place, if they don't understand what's going on, it's likely to just go right over their head. So many opera companies in the last few years 
and maybe you heard about this, they installed little screens on the back of the seat in front of you where the lyrics, the Italian lyrics or whatever, are translated. So you go, oh, so that's what they're singing about. And the synopsis, of course, is printed in the program, and it's, it starts to make sense. So I knew all that long before this summer, but it came back to me because of a novel I read, Ann Patchett's award-winning Bel Canto. It's about an opera singer. I won't say anything about the plot for the moment, but it's about an opera singer, and it's a story, right? And, and you get to the end of a story, and you're done with the book, except in this case, she had an appendix, <laughs> and it's called How to Fall in Love with Opera. She starts by admitting that she did not grow up loving opera and even as an adult had no clue what was going on. In college, she went on a date with a boyfriend who took her to a Red Sox game and she felt the same way about that because she didn't know the rules of baseball. And he was the one who said, it's tough to appreciate something if you don't know what's going on, which is true. I mean, you can go to a baseball game and have a hot dog, but if you don't know the rules of the game, you're probably not going to get the same thing out of it. And you can go to the opera, you can dress up, you can get a glass of wine at intermission, you can tell all your friends, yes, we went to the opera the other night. But if you didn't understand it, what's the point? And it's the same for worship. You can come Sunday after Sunday, you can stand, you can sit, you can sing, you can pray, but if you don't, if you don't understand how it works, what's the point? So in that course, the one you're enrolled in, I, I used to have them read some biblical passages for the first week. About 12 passages, something like that, and always this one from Isaiah 6. Because as I mentioned, some people consider it a kind of worship checklist. They say, everything you need is there. Well, not quite everything. You notice there's nothing in the passage about announcements or offering. For that matter, there's nothing in there about communion or sermon. But there is a great theological flow. And surprisingly, it begins not with praise, but pain. Did you catch it? In the year Uzziah died. It'd be like saying, in the month JFK was assassinated, Uzziah was one of Israel's good kings, so the passage is dated not just by what is going on in Israel, but who has, been, who, who has died, and it begins in pain. Some people think worship has to always be upbeat, happy, clappy. But this passage says, no, you can bring your brokenness to worship. And then it moves to praise. The angels, the seraphs singing, holy, 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 which ends up being not just a great hymn, but the very nature of God, three times holy, three, the perfect number. It moves from that to recognition of sin, not just personally, but corporately. And that sin is met with pardon, forgiveness. And then comes the call and response, the commissioning. Well, who, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. My students did not have to take a test. They had quizzes, but they didn't have to take a test because the test was putting together a worship service. They had to design it, they had to lead it, they had to do everything, and of course I would sit in the back with my little clipboard and my checklist. And I had a bunch of things that you had to check off. And 
we're only in a 15-minute version here, not the 15-week semester. So I'm just going to share two of them with you. But I would say this about both. Worship always has a tension. A tension or a balance between this and this. And you have to keep them in perspective. And I'll show you what I mean. The first one I always shared with them is that worship is a carefully arranged conversation that has both vertical and horizontal dimensions. In the text, the angels sing to God. It's vertical. Isaiah confesses his sin to God. God pardons. It's vertical. But there are also horizontal elements. Isaiah confesses the sin of the people, and when commissioned, well, where's he going to go? He's going to go to the people. In worship, there's always something going on vertically, but also horizontally, and that's true in our worship. If you took a bulletin and opened it up and looked line by line, you could put a V or an H by everything we do, and sometimes even both. Sometimes we sing hymns like, holy, holy, holy. Well, that's clearly vertical. But sometimes we sing hymns that are horizontal, like, sister, let me be your servant. We're singing to each other. Yeah, we pray to God, but we also greet one another. But here's where the tricky part comes. It's not just randomly vertical, horizontal. We don't just say, okay, now this, now. There is, there's plot. I don't know if this will make sense, but I remember this vividly. When our kids were in grade school, and they'd be in one of those musicals or plays, you know, fifth grade musical or something, and we would go, we'd have the camcorder, in those days it would weigh about 100 pounds, and it's on your shoulder, and you're ready to get the video, and that's when the PTA would sneak in a meeting. We were all captive, right? If they'd have said, come out for the PTA meeting, we weren't coming, but we were there for the musical, and they would say, now before the musical, we need to have a, a brief PTA meeting, and they'd pass around the agenda, and there'd be, I don't know, five or six items on it. And it would not have mattered if you had rearranged those in any order. They were business items. But the musical, the play, it had to happen in a certain order because that's a drama unfolding. The Christian drama is vertical and horizontal, but it is telling a story. Worship follows a story. And that story has been built historically on telling the story, preaching the word, and eating this meal. Those have been the two pillars of Christian worship for a long, long time. The second tension is that worship is a blend of, are you ready, transcendence and eminence. See, normally you'd have to pay tuition for words like that. <laughs> Transcendence is a fancy word for the majesty or the holiness, the otherness of God. But eminence is about the closeness or the intimacy of God. And both are present in the text. This God in Isaiah 6 is so big and majestic and transcendent that the angels sing holy, holy, holy nonstop. Or how about this one? This God is so big and majestic that the hem of God's robe, just the hem, fills the temple. That's a big God. But this God, who is so big, is also intimate. This God comes so close that our lips are touched. Our sins are forgiven. This God speaks our names. This God says to us individually and collectively who 
will go, and then listens. If you think about it, here, elsewhere, worship, worship can be so transcendent and reverent and beautiful that it becomes cold. But worship can also be so friendly and warm and inviting that it loses its reverence. God is both, and therefore worship should be both. So I saw a few of you shake your head when I mentioned the novel Bel Canto. It really is good. I had friends tell me for years I should read it. I just didn't get around to it until this summer. And I won't give away the plot except to say there is an opera singer, but there's more going on. A group of guerrilla fighters trying to overthrow this revolutionary government down in another country. They take hostages. There's a beautiful dinner party going on. A wealthy patron is having his birthday, and he has flown in the world's greatest opera singer for his birthday. And so that's kind of the plot. But there's a subplot. The subplot is not just the beauty of her voice, but beauty itself, just beauty. And as a theologian, I would add, beauty is another name for God. I flipped to the front of the book, because I always do that to see what year was it written. 2001, the same year of the 9-11 attacks, when the world turned very ugly. Now, there's no way, of course, she would have known that when she wrote it. But the timing, the timing of it, this is a world God made beautiful. But we are a people of unclean lips, and it is not always beautiful anymore, and yet God is always working to bring beauty out of the ugliness. We worship because we long to experience the beauty of God. So there's your primer on worship 401. You all pass. You all pass. I never did that before. You all pass. There's no exam. I used to give quizzes. I was going to give a quiz. I was going to say, get your bulletin out, number 1 to 10 in the margin somewhere. But no, that would be silly. But if we were having a quiz, there would have to be one question on it for sure. What is your main takeaway that would make worship more meaningful for you?